Well, I am uh, over the moon about our start of this new little mini-series, but I want to start this with a quote. Theologian Chris Russell states loudly that Christianity hinges on what faith is. Christianity hinges on what faith is. Yet, if I were to ask both Christian and not in this room, do you have enough faith? If I were to go up to you and say, do you have enough faith? I believe that there would be a resounding no that would bellow from this room. Because to talk of faith on any platform, spiritual or faith in our relationships or faith in our employers, it leaves us found wanting. For many, there is a lack we feel with faith. So the question is, why? Because for many, if not all of us, we don't know what faith is or what it's for or how to apply it. Like a toothbrush used as a hairbrush. Like we don't know what it's for. And so the problem is that these are like two fighting dogs, right? Christianity hinges on what faith is. And many, if not most Christians, don't know what faith is. The way many of us, if again, not most of us, talk of the subject is with the overlay of there's something that we need to do or to conjure up or to summon or just get more of because as of right now, most of us would certainly say, I don't have enough. I don't have enough faith. And this intrinsically makes faith what it was never tended to be, that being currency. Treating faith like it's cash flow making God a debtee or a loan officer, and us thinking like money, currency, if I had enough, I could be unstoppable. That if I had enough faith, I could be unstoppable. If I had enough faith, she would be alive. Or if I had enough faith, he would be healed. Or if I had enough faith, we would be better. And this, if this is the actual case, and some of that was true, then Christianity and this church would be absolute shambles. In fact, if you ever hear anybody from this pulpit say anything like that, stand up, spit on the ground, or whatever you're going to do, slam the door and go leave a Yelp review. Or do something, like leave. This church has made the Christian faith a faith of works. Post, like whatever it is, go. So here's what I love about the book of Hebrews. We're on the outset, Christianity, again, for those here who are new to it or curious about the Christian faith, can, it can look and feel and even smell like morality or ethics or duties or virtue. The book of Hebrews, for the last 10 heavy, piercing, deep chapters, has grabbed us by the hand, though, and leads us from those very right things into the beyond. Meaning today we enter the final frontier of the book of Hebrews. The conclusion after 10 chapters happens today. We are entering the promised land of the book of Hebrews. Or I was thinking this morning, because I'm an eight-year-old boy, is you remember like when Willy Wonka opens the door to like the chocolate candy rainforest? Remember that? Remember that great moment when you saw that for the first time? You're like, yes! Oh God, please let it be so! Remember that? (laughs) That's what this is. So let's just read the opening verses one more time, and let's run in and eat edible teacups and jump in the jump in the milk chocolate river. Verse 19. Mm. Verse 19. Therefore, Andre, 
What, when it says the words therefore, what are we supposed to ask? What is it there for? <laughs> what is it there for? <laughs> we are supposed to ask, what is it there for every time we see this word in the Bible? Because it's about to make a concluding statement. Verse 19, after so many chapters, says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter in the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, super graphic and gnarly. We'll get into that in a minute. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us, let us draw near oh, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Casey, what is the conclusion after 10 heavy, heavy chapters of the book of Hebrews? Draw near, draw near, draw near. Therefore, in view of what Christ has accomplished in his life and in his death and his resurrection, you and I can now stand in the presence of God confidently. Confidently. Compare this to the, heart, the start of Hebrews 11. Look at verse 3 of Hebrews 11. We have to compare the starts of these chapters. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. The privilege of Christ's sacrifice is we get to be confidently in the presence of a world speaking into existence God. This is our everything, the book of Hebrews says. So if that's true, the book of Hebrews says, he says, do it. Do it. Use your all-access pass Come closer and stare at him. Which is a little bonkers if you think about it within our city, where there are all sorts of barriers to prevent us from certain like cultural royalties or talent or celebrities' houses. Trust me, they are hard to get into. Like they are hard to get close to. I would know. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> I haven't broken in any celebrities' houses yet. But not so with God. Not so with God. And if Christ has done the accomplishing for us and we're told to enter, Hebrews 10 and beyond tells us how. It tells us how. Look at verse 22 one more time. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Mm -hmm. So Collective Church, as you heard much or you know, many times this morning, this is our starting line as we go into the 16 weeks of studying individuals in this mini-series on faith. This is the starting line. Full assurance of faith. The stranger, that's who we affectionately call the author who's extremely unknown and extremely eccentric, but he's the author of this book. He says, enter, but not trying to fool God, not trying to act if we deserved it or pretending to love or praise him as if God could be like hoodwinked by our religion or by our rituals or by our routines. That is not a true heart with a full assurance of faith. See, that word assurance, if you have one of those journeys, right underneath or right next to it, assurance means conviction or certainty. So let's read this again or understand it again. Enter in with full certainty. So I think this would be a good moment to stop and answer our very simple question of what is faith? What is faith? It is, oh, you can't see the bottom part, warranted certainty in who God is. 
this was going to be such a great moment. Derek, go home, Derek. Go home. Warranted certainty in God. Peek with me one more time at Hebrews 11. Ooh, now faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Other Bible translations would say things like faith is being sure of what we hope for, or faith means putting on our full confidence in the things we hope for. So hopefully we're tracking with this. Let me flesh this out. The faith Christians are beckoned to possess is warranted certainty that no matter how discouraging our present circumstances may be, there is a solid, unseen reality underlining them. That reality is God's promises and his personhood. So I'm going to say it even clearer again. When our faith is actually lived out, it operates in unseen goodness. Okay? In bad circumstances. We operate as if there's unseen goodness in bad circumstances. This is the essence of new country thought in old country. Practically, this means when I'm called to abandon certain plans in my life, I live with warranted certainty that God is a great provider. Practically, this means when I am in the most deepest pain imaginable, I live with warranted certainty that God will not let any of that pain go purposeless. Practically, this means when I encountered loss, loss of a spouse or a divorce or children or hopes and dreams, I live with warranted certainty that God is good in the bad. So if you're still with me, this is the beyond that we spoke of. Faith isn't just trusting that God is going to do good things. No. Faith is trusting that God himself is good. And those two planes of thought are entirely different wavelengths. Entirely different. This is where we need like a razor to split open the difference between belief and faith. Now those two in the Bible are interchangeable at times. But there's a giant difference between the two. For an example... As the book of James talks about, even demons believe in God. Even Angelinos, the spiritualist Angelinos, believe there's a higher power. But that doesn't mean they have faith. Hebrews 10 and 11, the word usage of faith is different. It's not just about belief. Here it transcends intellectual like acceptance. It doesn't shun it. It doesn't remove it. It doesn't deny it. It is just a different form of faith. This faith we encounter, if you want to write this down throughout all Hebrews 11, is commitment and like existential trust in God's goodness. And I believe, if I could speak as a pastor to this church, that is what we struggle with the most. Nobody here, I'd be shocked if somebody here really, really can deny there's a higher power. But I think it would make us squeamish for some people in this room to say that the God of the Bible is good to you personally. It would make some squeamish to say God is good in general. Could that be you today? If that is you today, then I cannot encourage you enough to be anticipating these verses this series. So by the last half of 
book of, or chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, just as you're going to kind of notice as we read, it really is an introduction to chapter 11. So we're going to use it as such, as an introduction into our mini-series. So hear me, I ask for your grace, because today's going to be a bit more macro, because we're about to spend 16 weeks in the micro, okay? So just bear with me. I need to, we need to give this a proper understanding, a proper weight, or the impact of Hebrews 11 will be minimal. So do me a favor, flip the page, or if you have a Bible, however you would do it in your Bible, and go just look at Hebrews chapter 11. I just want us to look at it. I want us to soak in Hebrews chapter 11 in a 30,000 foot level view, a bird's eye view. Just look at it. All right. I love the sound of Bible pages turning. Mmm. Right away we notice its length, or at least we should. This is the longest chapter in the book of Hebrews. This is 40 verses. It mentions the word faith, as you may notice, 24 times. A lot. That's more than half of its verses. What you also may notice, just sort of staring at it, because I want us to sort of soak it in, is that the largest section is given to Abraham, the patriarch Abraham. Now, just looking at it from this view, though, you may not get some of its underlining brilliance or spiritual strategy. For instance, allow me to share with you, and what you'll remember is that the men and women in the book of Hebrews that it's, the sermon is being preached to, the men and women there are tempted to walk away from the faith, walking away from Jesus, leaving the church, leaving the Christian faith. And they're thinking about going to the old ways of the people who are listed through Hebrews 11. So by the stranger using these people, he's saying, you're walking away from what your heroes believe. Foolishness. Second, if you look closely, we see that the author covers four historical pig, uh, figures, starting with creation at God's word, creating the universe into existence in verse 3, which we just read, and so on. Now, before I go over this, this is where a lot of people start to get really bored, and this is where like, Bible nerds start to get like sweaty palms. Like, yeah, bring it! So I, I just encourage everybody to pay attention as much as possible, because this is pretty cool. Look at verses 4 through 7 of he chapters 11. This covers the people in the antediluvian period. Now, that sounds really boring or really fancy to whoever you are, but all that means is people who lived before Noah's flood. Yes, in the next coming weeks, we're going to cover the flood. Verses 8 through 22, he describes people who lived in the pre-Mosaic period. This is the age of the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah to Jacob and so on and so forth. Verses 23 to 29 it is the faith of Moses himself. God bless him. He becomes the center of attention. And then finally, 30 through 40, he mentions a number of people post the moment. Okay? And all of this is meant to solidify and intensify their confidence, confidence and yours. Their confidence, this original church in the book of Hebrews, and ours. How? Very practically, it's best traditionally understood this way. Now, I've never done this in all of our time, but I need... A volunteer. Holy smokes. Who? Nobody. Great. Andre, get up here. Nobody did. Come here. This is how it's best traditionally understood. Stay there. Not too close. Be easy. Right there. No, right there. Right there. Is Andre behind me? Feel free to talk in church. It's okay. Is Andre behind me? Lisa, is Andre behind me? <laughs> Welcome back, Lisa. 
So he's not behind me, right? Everybody gets that. It would be foolish and stupid for me to think Andre's behind me, right? Watch this. Andre, stand behind me. Come on. Not super close. Right there. No eye contact. All right. Is Andre behind me? Can I see him? But you can't. But you can't. That's the point. <laughs> Thank you, Andre. That. <laughs> Thank you. That is the point of Hebrews chapter 11. Even though I may not be able to see what God is doing, or the goodness of God, or the plans and provisions and promises of God, you all can. These men and women are collectively called, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, they're called, so great a cloud of witnesses. That's who they are. That's their, that's their you know, softball team name, cloud of witnesses. That's who they are together. They are witnesses that someone is behind me, like Andre. And they are also witnesses that your certainty is warranted. No, 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 they're saying, be certain. Let me explain that fuller. Look at verses 26 through 30. I told you, today's introduction overview. Bear with me. Look at, t- look at verses 26 through 30. If you read these as part of our Bible reading plan, you've probably felt some serious spiciness, right? These are spicy. Jeremy? Yeah, add some Greek yogurt to that spice, huh? Cool it down a bit. <laughs> spicy. I mean, he literally writes the words, trampling underfoot the Son of God. Oh, gosh, can you even write that? This is all similar language and warnings from chapter 6, okay? Now, if you want a full expose, go listen to the talk I gave called Pilgrim, The Pilgrim's Progress. We don't have time to do a recap as much as it would be fun to do, but quickly what this means is don't reject, he's saying, the cross of Jesus, because if you do that, there is no other way to draw near to God. Essentially, what he's doing is this. The whole multiple paths to God does not exist. It does not exist. That's what he's basically undoing. So what he's saying is, even though there could be repetitive sins within our life, that is less to do with that and more to do with deliberate rejection of Jesus. But aside from all of that, what we should be wondering as we travel through this immense book is why does a stranger go into this again? Like, really? An intense Hebrews chapter 6 recap? Why? Why the dark overtones? Here's why. He's warning us again that if you persevere, and if you endure, and if we operate out of faith, and if we believe the great cloud of witnesses, then there will never, ever come a time when we will ever declare this whole faith thing as worthless. That is his entire point summed up. If you persevere, you will never consider this worthless ever. And this is as much for Christians in this room as for those who aren't. It's the whole G.K. Chesterton wager and challenge where G.K. said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been difficult and left untried. You see, some of you are here right now gathering intel, filling a database of should I choose to follow Jesus or not? That's happening currently in this room. Is it worth it? Can I feel it? Can I buy into this or not? And those are very, very good things. And those are things I did before I started following Jesus. 
but I'm just here to totally bum you out because the bottom line is there will be aspects of the Christian faith and Christian trust in God that will not be understandable until faith is in practice and that is just the way it is. For example, faith and, and, and trust is very unique to relationships. I don't know every detail of my wife. I want to spend the rest of my life getting to know every detail of her. But that doesn't stop me from trusting her, having faith in her, drawing near to her, and ultimately loving her. But that's what these next 16 weeks want to address. That very thing. These past character studies are our present proofs. I I have a list. I just want to show you a list of, this is everybody that we're going to go over. This is everybody. Soak it up. What's crazy is what, looking at this list, these testimonies are our confidence. This is what's giving us our warranted certainty. And when we hear stories about these men and women's lives who were in far harder spaces, a far harder time, and they didn't quit, what that basically does is challenge us in this room, Collective Church, in this moment, because they didn't give up, then what is our excuse? We are left or removed of excuses by studying their lives. Now, maybe you're saying, okay, Casey, one more time, Derek. Maybe you're saying, Casey, are you kidding me? Look at this list. Are you, are you freaking out? Are you, are, you're so wrong. These are the Jesus Avengers, right? These are the God Globetrotters. Of course they didn't give up. This is a list of warriors, kings, poets, prophets. This list is the beast list. These guys are incredible. Each one of them, like Ethan Hunt, like, right? Everybody, they have their own impossible mission. It's pretty incredible. But that is a serious, serious misread and misapplication of Hebrews 10 and 11. If they were sitting here this morning, these 16 people in this room, and I shouted out, do you have enough faith? You know what they would yell back at me? Wrong question. Wrong. This list is a long list of prostitutes, murderers, liars, adulterers, doubters, and deceivers. To make it really modern and applicable to collective church right now, it's as if we're reading the Hall of Faith as a list of people who were addicted to pornography, people who've had abortions, or people who wrestle with their sexuality. That's the list, modernized. So then, it's not all about the amount of their faith. That's not what at all what it's about. It's about the object of their faith. They are immortalized in this list because of the object of their faith. So by way of introduction into chapter 11 and to better define faith, I want to put four giant stakes in the ground pertaining to faith. And again, I don't want any emails, so anybody, anything I don't address here, just bear with me. If I don't address something, you're like, Casey, you forgot to talk about faith, reason, and doubt, and, you know, intellectual rationale, or, you know, faith and emotion and and, and imagination. We're going to get into it. That's all I say is give us time. We're just going to get into anything I can't cover today. For an example, Samson will teach us lessons on faith and failure. Gideon will teach us lessons about faith and doubting. Noah will teach us lessons about faith and fear. All the way to Rahab who will teach us lessons about faith and risk. We will get there. Bear with me. Don't send me an email, Sean. Okay, sound good? Hold Sean accountable. That guy loves email sending. Casey, today sucked. (laughs) Just, he's never said that. 
That's joking. Miranda's face is really shocked. So, the first stake is relevant to what we were just talking about. And it is faith is average. Faith is average. And I'm going to do it alliterated because everybody wants alliterations in their sermons. You're welcome. Yeah. Write it down. All the, all the same letters match. Now, these aren't the super friends. They're listed within this chapter because they had average faith in average moments. Okay, for example, next week we're going to get into Abel. This is so fun. And Abel's immortalized and put in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know why? He did one offering. I think that is outrageous. We've been in the book of Hebrews where they have been talking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands and thousands of offerings. And Abel does one. And the stranger's like, well, that will be great to put in here. It's like you giving money to the church one time. And all of us are like, yes, that's it. That's what it's like. So all that to understand is that this next series is all about average faith. They're put in here because they build things. For one of them is put in here because she had a kid. The other one's put in here because they move from one city to another. Does anybody move from one city to another? Three of you? What a bunch of liars. I need interaction. I've moved once. <laughs> If we keep going down, bear with me, if we keep going down this thought process, it would seem that anyone for anything when married with warranted certainty could be listed here. And that is precisely the point. That is precisely the point. But what's insane is none of the 16 knew what they were doing or that they would be immortalized forever in the 16 list. Nobody's having a kid going, this is going to put me in the list. Nobody's in this moment going, I can't wait. No. And it's true for us today. Our faith moment doesn't have to be this grand opus of reaching the spiritual summit of spiritual accomplishments. More often, these average moments are unremarkable, middling, quiet, and unseen. So then, bear with me. Let's imagine if we were rewriting Hebrews chapter 11 today for this church... That changes things, puts it in perspective. Because then I start thinking, if it's average moments, then I would start thinking, who needs to put in our own list? Well, I, Tucker. Tucker's in my discipleship group. He's a guy who faithfully comes and sets up chairs every week. He should be put in the list for that. Or what about a mother in here who is trusting in the Lord, has faith in the Lord, that her, her child is going to be made well? That she should be put in here. Or what about... Travis and Melissa, they faithfully, every other week, host our neighborhood dinner. That average thing, it's not average, you guys have a beautiful backyard. That average thing puts people into the list. My pastor's prayer is we do not diminish small moments and everything, and we know that everything matters. Every dollar, every handshake, every prayer, every action. Which leads us into our next stake, which is faith is action. If you've been with us from the beginning of Hebrews, this should not sit right with you. This should bother you. Meaning he has not told us to do anything yet. For 10 chapters, he said, stop. And now he says, go. Now he says, draw. Now he says, do. All of Hebrews chapter 11 is behavioral. This is the first time we see this. 
Because now in light of proper dogma or proper doctrine, he says, go be nuts. Again, look at Hebrews chapter 11. Just again, 30,000 foot. You're only going to notice this. Abel offered, Noah built, Abraham left, Jacob blessed, Rahab hid. Then look at 11 verses, uh, chapter 11, verse 32. We should have it on the screen as well, if not. But look what this, what he says. And what more shall I say? He starts spitballing. For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. Who through what? Now look at this. Faith conquered, enforced, obtained, stopped, quenched, escaped, became mighty. Behavioral, behavioral, behavioral. Faith is always two-part. It begins in our heads and in our hearts, but if it doesn't come to our hands, it is not fully fulfilled. Faith is always two sides of the same coin as far as head, heart, and hands. There is no, so let me just make this really practical. There is no, I got faith in the Lord for my finances. But until I get out of this financial lull or I get my job back, I'm going to stop giving to the church. That's not faith. That's fear. That's fear. Faith is saying, I'm going to give to the church. I'm in a financial lull, and I'm not going to stop. That was a quick example. A quick one. And a quick one here that I want to also just make as far as the next stake, but it's important to at least establish because I think these are questions with faith. But faith is altered. No one's story in Hebrews chapter 11 is the same. For an example, Abel had faith. And he was murdered. Isaac had faith and he was spared. Why does this happen to some and not to others? Why does one woman in our community lose a child and another woman in our community bear a child? Why does one man in our community marry somebody and another man in our community remain single? The answers to these questions, I don't know. I have no idea. See, faith, thank God, doesn't put us on the same conveyor belt where one dynamic fits all. The only constant within the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, for them and for one another is the object of our faith. Not the obstacle. The only constant is the object. Which takes us to our last point. Faith is arduous. Faith is really hard. Uh, many were very shocked to find that post-death of Mother Teresa, they published all of her diary, diary entries, which I just was sort of flabbergasted. I think the, the book's called Come by the Light, which I'm sure, again, she would have just loved. All of her intimate thoughts published. I mean, but this diary was filled with doubts, fears, and concerns. And you know what happened when that book was published? The world freaked out. The world went nuts. You can actually go and just look at the countless New York Times articles to whatever else of people going, are you kidding me? Mother Teresa? If she could not have a certain level of faith, how can we? That's all their underlining question is, if she can't, how can we? But that right there exposes a misguided purpose of if I'm reading Hebrews 10 and 11 rightly, a deeper understanding of faith would ask instead, why wouldn't this happen to her? No longer the questions of why, why would this happen to Mother Teresa? We need to read this and go, why wouldn't this happen to her? 
Why wouldn't faith be arduous given one's hope and desire and openness to enter into Christ's fullest of experiences? I heard one unsourced author say that if faith does not cost us something, then it is nothing. Only much later I could respond, if faith does not cost us everything, it is nothing. You see, a warranted certainty in God for our desires, determinations, and destinations will cost you and I everything. Look at verse 33 of chapter 10. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Remember, this church is under heavy social and political persecution. They're in prison. So then, faith in Christ doesn't mean we are spared from hard struggles, suffering. What did he say? Affliction, loneliness, hard, uh, reproach, heartaches, betrayals, anxieties, fears, humiliations that infect this world. So just to be clear, faith, as we're going to see, is not a pass. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card or whatever you want to say. It's actually quite the opposite. Faith is the invitation to greater suffering. See, what we're going to see over the 16 proving grounds is that when our faith feels like darkness rather than light, or when our faith feels like unstableness rather than solidarity, then we know that our faith is alive and not dying. Because it's at those moments where faith is employed to trust God at the highest level. That is what the stranger is reminding the church of. He's trying to remind them that everything is in a honeymoon. Look at verse 34, because this is hilarious. This is mind-bending. He's reminding them. He goes, do you remember you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, that being eternity, and an abiding one. Do you remember when all of your stuff was being destroyed, and you were joyful at the sight of it? Now that these honeymoon days are over, the author says you will experience a heart transplant with a true heart and assured faith. So then despite your pain, there is nothing wrong with you. There is nothing wrong with your God. There is nothing wrong with your situation. In fact, if we read Hebrews 11 right, there's something very right with you. There's something right with you when crap hits the fan. When faith transcends our feelings, and it must, look at what Tim Keller says, pastor in New York, faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Faith is living out and believing what truth is despite what you feel. It's one of our biggest prayer requests for this church is we would not be emotion-led. I don't feel this way. I don't feel this. I don't feel like reading. I don't feel like serving. Whatever we don't feel like doing within the Christian faith is what we need to step into the most. So then, when it starts to function and when it starts to operate and our feelings are not our overlord, it's because we are moving past, like being faith novices. When this happens and things get hard, we are leaving an, initi- you know, like a, an initiatory stage of growth. So collective church, hear me. The next time you are faced with a crisis, don't freak out. You are being led into a deeper, not a lesser, a deeper faith in the Lord. This is the most exciting aspect of a true heart with full assurance of faith. Because with faith, we meet God, not ourselves. What we want is to meet our true selves in that moment. Oh my gosh, you know, we meet God. Meaning we are being ushered into his presence. We are drawing near, as you saw in verse 22. What an 
absolute gift faith is because of that. And to be ushered into his presence to draw near will come at times by the way of arduous pain and suffering. Look at verse 19 one more time. We'll wrap it up with this. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, pain and suffering. Verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. If you remember what separated man, excuse me, man from God in the temple was a thick curtain. And we went into great detail a couple weeks ago. Now the author makes the same comparison that the separation from God, any separation was ripped apart because Jesus Christ was ripped apart. This is our grounds for faith. Why? And what we need to ask ourselves in every dark moment is if Christ can be faithful to the point of being ripped in half, then what lengths will he not be faithful to in your life? If I'm struggling with this, the ripping of Christ in half should only give me warranted certainty in this very dark moment of my present life. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. Our faithfulness, our faith, stands, lives, and breathes upon his. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This question asks the question that I try to ask at the end of every sermon, which is, if the truths of this passage were more real to me, how would this impact my life? These verses we just read give us two practicals of what faith asks of you and asks of me. Verse 23 is that we'd hold fast without wavering, saying don't shrink back, don't throw away your confidence. But the way that plays out, pay attention, collective church, because this is about to go directly to you. The way that that plays out, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. What's so sad about that verse is I was raised in a church, a very, very legalistic church, where it says if our doors are open, you better be there. Don't neglect it. You better be there. Every single thing we did, and we had a lot of events throughout the week, you better be there. And that was the verse that they used as backfire. That's not what that verse means. This is about the neglect of community and the gathering of the saints. If this is what you call your church, like if you're saying, no, I go to collective church, I make it my home, then this community is for you. This is what it's talking about. This is the community that you may be one day tempted to neglect. You see, there are few things more dangerous to collective church or to any local church than the privatization, privatization, the privatizing of your faith. It is so dangerous to a local church. And the stranger saying, and some here will not like it, get ready for the emails, but to reject church community is to reject Christ himself. This gathering, Hebrews connects to our, our, our eternity. Look at verse 25. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near when Christ returns. He's saying this is a small foretaste what we do on Sundays of our eternity. And if we can't do this, if we can't stick together and love greatly and show hospitality and not settle for superficiality, then our eternal binding will too be unwanted. I... 
just as one of your pastors here, I'm fired up about what these next 16 weeks are going to do to this church. I'm straight fired up. Luke, right? You fired up? Listen, it can't just be me fired up. It can't just be Luke fired up. (laughs) This is us. This is us. Collective church, we must continue thinking in terms of I need you and you need me. Meaning, if I don't show up, somebody will cover it. Meaning, if I don't go, there's somebody will be there. I need Allie. Allie needs me. I need Lorenzo. Lorenzo needs me. I need Cassandra, and Cassandra needs me. The more we privatize that, push that away, neglect community, the more and more and more we are in danger zone, the book of Hebrews would say. We must continue thinking in terms of how I can stir one another up. I know this is Pastor Lorenzo's, like, one of the most favorite parts in all of Scripture because what he likes to talk about in this part is that word, that idea of stirring up, it means to rile up. It doesn't mean I'm going, hey, Ross, <laughs> looking good, bud. No! It means to cause some serious commotion in Ross's life. If I'm not causing commotion as my part in this body, then what am I doing? If I'm here just to rub your backs, leave. Oh my gosh, we are here to rile one another up. We are not to settle collective church for complacency. Oh, I'm over it, aren't you? Let's get nuts. And I just want to say, as far as faith, as far as it goes into discipleship groups here, what I get encouraged about, what I get excited about, is what he does is he lays it out how we're supposed to treat one another. He says you encourage and you love one another and you stir one another up. So what I get really, really excited about and I hope starts to change in our discipleship groups is we become two mother bear over discipleship groups. We become mother bears. Meaning, no, no, I'm not, that person's not ready to come in yet. Or, you know, I think we should do this and we should do that. No. There are people in this room who need to be loved, encouraged, and stirred up. And it is our job, our commission, our responsibility to bring that in. To bring that in. So if you or me or any of us are constantly, no, I'm not ready for that or not ready for this, and there's people in this room who need it, that's a neglecting of community. I'm going to get fired up. I'm excited what God is going to do in this church for the next 16 to 17 weeks. What is it for you? What could it be for you that God wants to call you to with a greater warranted certainty? For some of you, that could easily just be, I'm going to start volunteering. And I'm going to make myself transparent and vulnerable on Sundays or in any other way to start meeting new people and giving to this church in a way that I've been uncomfortable to. For some of you, that is stepping into a discipleship group. For some of you, that's just having people over to your house for dinner. If we take our faith seriously, which I hope by the end of this we do, That faith plays out first and foremost here. He immediately connects faith to the church. This is your practical step of faith here and now. What I would encourage us to ask is, God, what are you calling me to do? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to get there? That's what we need to take with us in a time of response. Put your warrant to trust in God. You will not, I will not regret it. He is worth it. Let us draw near. Amen? Pray with me.